where they, um, people phone in, give their opinions on the, the issues of the day. Uh, now and again, I listen in, and uh, what I find quite often comes across is something like this. Somebody says, I'm totally disgusted at. Um, or you'll listen at question time on the, uh, on the TV or any questions on the radio, and someone from the audience says, look, I'm, I'm just disgusted. That's, and then they, they go on about their issue. There's a lot of disgust out there, total disgust. And it's interesting, in this time of inclusiveness and equality, there's still a large amount of moral judgment being made all the time, everywhere. Uh, there used to be uh, a famous person who used to write letters to the, to the London Times, uh, which were signed off, disgusted, from Tunbridge Wells, uh, where they railed against various moral and social ills of the day. Uh, that person seems to have died and those letters have stopped, but social media is just full of tweets and stories of people being absolutely disgusted at the attitudes or the behaviors of others. Now, why do we express disgust? What's going on with that? Well, it's a way of kind of putting distance, isn't it, between uh, us, upright people, and, and the people who do those disgusting things. It, it's, it's a statement of distance, and it's a statement of moral superiority. Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase I've heard a lot recently, virtue signaling. Have you heard this phrase? Uh, that people are virtue signaling as they decry attitudes or behaviors in others. They are, in fact, pointing out how kind of right on politically, uh, morally they are in their judgments as they signal their sort of their anger or their disturbance at other things. It seems to be very part uh, of our human nature that we constantly pass judgment on others. Now, what does God have to say to us about that? Well, it was just read to us a moment ago, so please open your Bibles again to um, Romans chapter 1 and uh, page 1,129. If you were here last week, uh, you would have heard how the Apostle Paul warned his readers in the first century that the moral chaos of their culture, the disordered desires that were evident around them, was a consequence of their disordered worship. That because they'd given up worshiping the true God and thanking him who created everything, they had turned and worshipped the created things. And this was the explanation of why we have um, such distorted desires and moral chaos in our culture. And he finished off with a very dark list of part of the, the moral chaos we see around us. Look back at chapter 1, verse 28. Uh, so furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so, so God gave them over to depraved minds so they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, <clears throat> they not only continue to do these very things, but also prove of those who practice them. <coughs> I 
And um, having finished there, it's as if Paul now turns to address the type of person who hears that terrible list and and would say something like this to the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul, I I quite agree. I find it very refreshing uh, that uh, you're calling out these people who do these terrible things. I do not approve of them at all. I don't approve of these people who have those sort of relationships, and I don't approve, approve of those who sort of uh, behave in those sort of ways. I, I think it's absolutely disgusting. Well done, Paul. Morally indignant from Morningside. Now, if that is our response, then we need to heed this warning here in chapter 2. And there's three points I want us to consider from Romans chapter 2. And I'm, I'm indebted this Sunday to Christopher Ash and his helpful book on teaching Romans. I've nicked his title, so thank you, Christopher. He's coming to speak at the Faith Mission Convention. Well worth hearing if you get the chance. You'll be up here later this summer. First point I need to think of. Every time I condemn others... I condemn myself before God. That's what the first three verses say. It it is, of course, right that we're outraged when we hear of people being abused, being murdered. These are outrageous things. They're wrong. Uh, Even more stories have come out this week of of the terrible scourge of sexual abuse against children. We've heard about uh, terrible reports of people behaving uh, abusively towards those with learning difficulties in specialist hospitals this week. And and it's right, we should say these things are wrong. They're morally wrong. They're terrible. They should not happen. The problem comes, however, when I find myself denouncing other people harshly for doing things that I end up doing myself. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. (coughs) Excuse me. It's part of our human nature that we are very critical of everybody apart from ourselves. We can be very intolerant of other people's behavior while being quite lenient on ourselves. Uh, We can work ourselves into quite a state of, of righteous indignation about the disgraceful behavior of others, but not be so exercised when exactly the same things happen within our family or whether we do them ourselves. We are very clever at coming up with mitigating factors that defend our actions. Uh, Why it was okay for us to behave in that way. Uh, I was very tired. They deserved it. That seems to be the main argument why people are throwing milkshakes at politicians. They deserved it. Uh, Now here's a few trivial examples, but this is what I find in my own life. I found myself... uh, Every now and again in a conversation with my wife, Shona, like this, and I'm sort of just, I'm criticizing a person that whenever they talk to me, they're always critical. 
And it just takes me a little while to work out that I'm doing exactly the same thing. Or another situation, I can find myself getting quite irritable towards my wife when she wanders around the house looking for her car keys or her mobile phone. And I sort of just, oh, oh. And I get very passive-aggressive. And I do a little patronizing little speech about how if she left her keys in exactly the same place, she would always find them when she needed them. And yet, when I lose my keys, I expect my wife to be completely sympathetic and to say, oh, love, let me help you. This is very fundamental to our human nature, isn't it? And what we need to remember is that God does not judge us according to what we say. He does not judge us about our, our virtue signaling, but what we actually do. Look at verse 2, chapter 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? When I pass these moral judgments, I show that I know that those things are wrong. And so when I, having judged others and found them wanting, end up doing exactly the same, same things, then I am utterly without excuse. I'll be utterly without excuse when I stand there on God's judgment day. And his judgment on me will be just, won't it? And his judgment on me will be inescapable. I've proved that in the way that I've critically judged others. Second point he makes. Every time I am not punished immediately, God is giving me time to repent. You see, there are some sins that people can keep doing for quite a while without any apparent consequences. Uh, the worker fiddling the expenses, a person viewing pornography, the boaster exaggerating, the spouse cheating away from home. In the past year, there's been some awful stories of uh, prominent evangelical leaders who've, it seems, for many years engaged in the misuse of ministry money and the mistreatment of people. And this went on for years and only now just coming out. The great mistake is to think that the reason that God has not punished me immediately is because I've got a free pass. I've got a moral past with God that somehow uh, I'm special and that God is not bothered by my pursuit of sin. Now that would be to entirely misunderstand the situation. Look at verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. The delay of God's judgment is not his approval for the life of a hypocrite, but his kindness to give us time to repent. 
we have a God who is very, very kind, who is very patient. God revealed his glory to Moses, and uh, as his glory passed before him, God pronounced his name, his character, in these words, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. There was a, 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 an incident that happens um, where a tower fell on some people. And the disciples said to Jesus, were, were they more sinful than others? And Jesus said, no, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so when we see calamities on the world, we need to be warned that God's message to the world is repent. But actually when life is going well, and we are sinning without repentance, and we don't feel the consequences, the message is this, we need to repent. It is the same message. God is giving us time to change direction. Now when we know how much the godlessness and wickedness in the world offends our holy God, it is incredible to consider how long-suffering and patient he is in holding back his wrath from us. He could do it instantaneously and he would be just and right. And yet he holds it back because he longs that we would turn around from our sin and turn to him to seek forgiveness. But the longer that we delay that repentance, the more we're showing contempt for God. To fail to respond to the riches of his grace is great contempt. God is appalled at our sin. In his holiness, he's affronted. And while he is very, very patient, there is a day that is coming when his patience will end. Look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God is a God of righteousness and of justice. There will be a day of accountability. It is a decisive judgment day that we're all heading to where we meet our maker. And on that day, his right judgment against all wrongdoing will be revealed and fully experienced. And it is terrifyingly described as the day of God's wrath. And the more we stubbornly refuse to repent and turn to him for forgiveness, the more we're adding to our condemnation. Our stubbornness is storing up God's wrath. It's as, it's as if it's a, it's a reservoir, and the more we delay, uh, the waters rise of God's wrath against us. And there will come a day, if we go to judgment day unrepentantly, the wrath of God will just burst on us and will be swept away for all eternity. So thirdly, I must turn because only the repentant person will be accepted on judgment day. That's what verses 6 to 11 teach us. See, the basis of God's judgment is clear. It's what we've done, verse 6. And then he describes two types of people. Uh, those who are persistent in doing good and those who do evil. Look at verse 7 again. 
to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, Bible commentators and preachers have come down differently. Cranfield comes up with about 10 options on this, which is always discouraging as the pastor has to preach just one short message. And um, the two main ways this is approached is either uh, verse 7 is a hypothetical person, that hypothetically, if you keep doing good, you will sort of earn yourself eternal life. Uh, But the truth is that that hasn't been true of anybody apart from Jesus. And so the logic, if you take it that route, is that therefore we really should repent because no one is in verse 7. But actually, the way I I think I've come to understand it in my studies this week is that the two groups of people being described here are the repentant in verse 7 and the unrepentant in verse 8. The repentant life is the one that has turned from our sin and turned towards God. That, That we are seeking God's glory. We're seeking God's approval and honor. We're seeking the joy uh, that comes from relationship uh, with God in God's presence forever. Such a turned around life, a repentant life, shows itself by an eager persistence to please God and, and, and do good, flowing out of that repentance. And it is to the repentant person that God gives eternal life. While the unrepentant person, verse 8, is characterized not by a pursuit of God, but a pursuit of self. It's described there as self-seeking. Instead of living my life in joyful worship and service of God, I'm living my life to please myself and and, and do what I want to do, even if that involves wickedness, if it suits me. And so for the unrepentant person, all they can expect, Paul says is wrath and anger. And that's true, whether we've had the privileges of a, of a Jewish family or, or not. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile, he says. Uh, to put it in our maybe uh, new sort of Christian terms, uh, it's true whether you've had the privileges of growing up at Charlotte Chapel or not. Whether you've had the privileges of... Uh, grow up in Christian family or not. The only relevant issue is, have you repented? Not whether you've had an experience of going to Charlotte Chapel or being in a Christian family. Have you repented or not? That's the crucial factor here. For God does not show favoritism. He's entirely impartial, it says in verse 11. The issue is not whether you're rich or poor, whether you're clever or dull, whether you're gifted or ungifted, moral or less moral. His judgment will be on this. Have you repented or not? And then he describes in verse 9 and 10 the outcomes of such life. The outcome of an unrepentant life. Objectively, it's God's wrath and anger. How is it experienced? It's experienced to us as trouble and distress. The outcome of a repentant life in, in verse 10, the gift of eternal life, objectively, what's that, what does that feel like? It feels like receiving what we've pursued. We will receive God's glory. 
We will receive God's approval, God's honor. We will enjoy peace with God forever. And do you see that there is therefore no room for self-righteousness in the life of the Christian, in the life of the Christian church when we understand the gospel? There should be no place in our fellowship of looking down on others. But instead, knowing that the life is marked by repentance means there really is level ground. Keep your finger here and uh, turn with me to the back of Romans, uh, page uh, 1141. Or look at uh, 140, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. It seems as if there were tensions amongst the Christians there in Rome between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Uh, they'd had different faith traditions, different rules about what foods you could eat or not eat, um, whether you should follow certain holy days or not, whether you should be engaged in practices like circumcision or not. And it seems that the Christians... Uh, were judging each other within their church. And so 14 verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Uh, look at um, 14 verse 10 over the page. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 13, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Verse 12, so each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. See, when the gospel really grips our hearts, when we understand that it's not on the basis of our privileges, our, our, our background, our um, own sense of uh, our moral virtue, but it that we're all under the wrath of God and we only come through repentance and there's no room to have a fellowship where there's any looking down our noses at each other, any of that hypocriticalness. Oh, you don't do the Christian life the way I do the Christian life. You're not as good as me. Oh, you went to the cinema, did you? Ah, okay. Not as holy as me. There's no space for that sort of way of thinking when we grasp the gospel Coming back to Romans chapter 1, though, this message of repentance and faith, which is the only hope as we face the wrath of God, is what makes the Christian church a missionary church. We are genuinely worried about a world that is heading away from God. There is a day of wrath that is coming. And yet we know the one who came and willingly went to the cross and though he was completely righteous and innocent, God's wrath was poured on him in the place of all those who trust Christ. It's as if, you know, a pic picture a terrible storm, a tornado crashing in on a shoreline and to be outside is to perish but there is this lighthouse on the rocks and if you get into the lighthouse you will be saved on that terrible tumultuous tornado day 
Well, simply, this is what a Christian has done. They have repented from their sin, and they have put their trust in Jesus. They've got in the lighthouse. And so the wrath of God will pass by them, and they are completely safe. And God is so very, very kind. He's given us another day where people can turn and repent and put their trust in Jesus. You know, if he gives us next week, wouldn't it be great to invite some folk to the if only so they could hear the good news about Jesus? And my friends today, if, if you are here today and you have not yet repented, it is God's great kindness that you're here today. But do not show contempt for the kindness of God and walk away unrepentant today. There is only one safe place and it is in Christ and we have to turn from our sin and trust Christ. Have you done that? We need to do that today if we've not done it. I I want to invite us all to pray a prayer of repentance. Perhaps for you it's for the first time. Uh, We know as Christians we live a life of repentance and faith. We know that we come to this God not by our works, but by his grace. So why don't you look at that prayer and see if you want to pray that prayer this morning. If you want to join in that prayer, let me invite you to say it out loud with me. Almighty God, Our Heavenly Father, we have gone our own way, not loving you as we ought, nor loving our neighbors as ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and in what we have failed to do. We deserve your condemnation. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbors, and to live for your honor and glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the best news in the planet. It's a very somber sermon, it's very serious. But when we heed it and come to Christ, there is such great joy in knowing that forgiveness and pardon. 